this week's Adam Schefter podcast, the end of the season is almost near. We will visit with the Baylor head coach, Matt Rule, as he discusses the chances that he will leave for the NFL. And we'll be joined by ESPN's draft expert, Todd McShay, as he breaks down the potential top 10 picks of the April 2020 draft and his thoughts on the quarterback class. And we'll be joined by the Ravens Pro Bowl left tackle, Ronnie Stanley, whose team is on a magical run this year to the number one seed in the AFC. And we'll have ESPN analytics guru Evan Kaplan breaking down all the big matchups of week 16 in the NFL before the 2020 year kicks in. But first, Baylor head coach Matt Rule. Joining us now, the head coach of Baylor, who will play Georgia in the All-State Sugar Bowl on January 1st. Matt, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Listen, back in 2015, you helped Temple gain its first top 25 ranking in 36 seasons. The next year, you lead the Owls to back-to-back 10-win seasons, pair of bowl berths, a 2016 AAC championship, and then this past year, you lead Baylor to 11 wins, a top 10 national ranking, and its first berth in the Big 12 championship game. So my question for you is, what is the key to turning around a college program? Well, um, I think it's I think it's really pretty simple. First of all, patience, because um, you, you, you mentioned the good years. You know, the bad years were the first year at Temple was 2-10, the first year here was 1-11. And, and um, I think you need to have a plan, and then you have to have the patience and the discipline to stick to that plan. And um, uh, part of that plan is getting the right people. I mean, uh, college football is uh, built on recruiting. It's built on development. And, and you have, you know, really whoever has the best roster has the best chance to win. And so to me, as you come into a program, if they're not winning, if, if things don't look great, it just starts with recruiting. And uh, A, recruiting incoming players. B, recruiting the guys that are there, trying to get guys to move around and really trying to take care of the roster and build the roster and, and then having the right coaching staff. And so we were able to do that at, at, at Temple. You know, you mentioned that 2015 team. I think there were – 36 or 37 guys ended up in so, some pro, form of pro football from that team. Wow. And, uh, you know, not all NFL guys, you know, some Canadian guys, uh, some guys that were in the NFL for a short amount of time, but there were a lot of future pros on that team. And, and um, to me, you know, they weren't always great players. They were, you know, they, they weren't in 2013, they weren't great yet, but we had to have the patience to, to not fire the staff to not overreact to just grind and eventually find a way to get there. You keep bringing up that word patience. Where does that patience come from? I remember my first year, Adam, at, at, uh, at Temple, and, um, you know, we had jumped up in conference, and I came in, and I thought we were going to be good, and we weren't. And we were 0-1, the 0-2, 0-3, and it was literally one of those, you know, things where I'm sitting there every day afraid to answer my phone, afraid they're going to call me and say, hey, you're out. <laughs> you know, you're fired. It was just, just kind of snowballing. And I'm sitting in my office, and they say, hey, Dick Vermeil's on the phone for you. And Coach Vermeil's obviously a legend, and I had, I had met him once but didn't really know him real well. And I remember him saying to me, he said, hey, Matt, you're, you're going through a tough season. I'm going to give you one piece of advice. He said, don't listen to anybody. Don't listen to the outside noise. Trust your coaches. Trust your process. Um, do what you think is right, and eventually you'll get there. And I, I, uh, I took that to heart, and I said, you know what, man, we're not going to take shortcuts. We are just going to put a process in place. And that, that's really all I believe in. I believe, like, you know, you have goals, but you have to wake up each and every day and just – to attack the small steps that take you know that it takes to get there, and um, that phone call was really transformative for me. And I said, you know what, this is what we're going to do, guys. And we eventually got there at Temple and got to Baylor, and there we are, same thing: zero and one, zero and two, zero and three. You know, we're we're zero and six, zero and seven. I remember telling our staff, you know, we're not going to listen to anybody. We're not going to change what we're doing. Um, you know, we are going to continue to just stay very process driven. And I think that. That patience probably came from that phone call, and, and I think it also came from the fact that eventually we won, and so I knew eventually here, you know, in time, we would find a way to win. Was that a cold call from Dick Vermeil out of nowhere, or did you have a relationship with him? Yeah, he had come to practice once in the preseason. He was friends with one of the trustees. You know, he, he maybe shook my hand and talked to me for two or three minutes, yeah. but um, I, didn't know him. I didn't know him at all, and he, and he cold called me, and, and since then has become a friend of mine. Since then has become a guy that that, uh, you know, I, I trust and I, I believe in. And, and, and I know that, because, you know, as you know, like when things are rough and when you're not winning a lot, 
Yeah. You know, you don't get a ton of phone calls. You know, you don't get a ton of uh, you don't get a ton of people reaching out to you. And, and and what I tell young head coaches when you know guys who are in their first year of being a head coach, I always say to them, "Hey, call me if I can help you in any way because there is no manual for being a head coach. There is no one to really call. There is no one to pick up. You can't. You know, I can't pick up the phone and call Gary Patterson or Tom Herman and say, "Hey, you know, hey guys, what do you think? You know, they they have their own teams. You know, and they're competing against me. So." Um, to have a coach like that reach out and say, "Hey, Matt, this is this is what I would do if I were you. This is what my, what I've learned." Uh, it was unbelievably invaluable to me. Well, he was big in the Philadelphia area. I remember going back to visit Philadelphia a couple of times. There were billboards of him in town for medical services, right? Like he's still a legend in Philadelphia, Dick Vermont. Oh, he, he yeah, he's an absolute legend, and and you know he still has a strong presence there with you know some of his uh, um, you know he he uh, has his winery. And yep. vineyard out just outside of Philadelphia, and and uh, I mean he's beloved in that city for you know for who not just what he did but who he is, and uh, you know the Eagle, the Philadelphia is a great you know town in terms of its love for the Eagles. You know Jaws is is yeah. you know you can't go anywhere he, anywhere he goes is like the Beatles. I mean he's a rock star as he should be. Now, how many coaches have called you for advice? You said that you're open for advice, uh, almost self help. There, how many people have taken you up on that? I think uh, a couple of guys you know they've become first year head coaches. I think when they've They've struggled through their first year. I think, you know, two, three, maybe guys have called me and said, hey, how did you deal with this? Because I think, you know, our, our losing, you know, at both the Temple and at Baylor that first year, um, it's pretty prominent. People know about it. And so I try to, when a guy gets a job, if he says, hey, you got any advice for me? I always say, hey, don't worry about the results the first year. Just make sure you're building. Like, don't look up at the end of the first year and have four or five wins, but not have established something. So I always say that. And so some guys do. Some guys pick up the phone and call and say, Hey, man, because it's hard. It's easier said than done, right? It's really, really hard. And they'll say, you know, how did you handle that? So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm very grateful to the coaches that helped me, the guys that I could pick up the phone and, and reach out to and say, I, you know, I need advice. Uh, you know, Dick Vermeil, Tom Coffin being another one, just great, great men. And so when, uh, when uh, people have called me, I've been you know, ecstatic to pick up. Now, you are playing in the All-State Sugar Bowl on January 1st, and you called that a bucket list item for you to take part in that game. Why is that a bucket list item? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, a great lover uh, of the game, and I love, you know, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys that go home at night, and, you know, if everyone's asleep, I'll put on the NFL Network and watch a replay of, like, a game from last week. You know, I'll watch a wow. college football historical game from 1982, and, and I grew up a Penn State fan. And um, one of my earliest football memories, I, was, I guess I was, you know, uh, seven years old, uh, was being back in Pennsylvania at my, at my grandparents' house with the whole family watching the 1982 Sugar Bowl, uh, Penn State, Todd Blackledge, just a, a great, great, great game. And so, you know, I, I've never been in the SEC. I haven't been in that place where you can go to that game. So, I've, you know, as a player, I went to the Rose Bowl. I went to the Fiesta Bowl. As a coach, I've been a couple places. But uh, this this will be a really special thing just for me as a college football fan and the history of, uh, of this game and the, the great coaches and the great players who've taken part in it. You know, it's interesting because, again, you graduated from Penn State. You played linebacker at Penn State under Joe Paterno. And I'll say this, Matt, both my parents went to Penn State. So when I was growing oh, wow. up, oh, wow. when, when I was growing up, I grew up a huge Penn State football fan. So when you brought up the Sugar Bowl there, I initially thought of the 79 game where Penn State was stopped four times at the goal line by Barry Krause, right. the Alabama linebacker, who went on to become a first-round <laughs> draft pick. And I was, at that point in time, I was seven, I was 13 years old, and I was crying that Penn State lost and didn't win the national championship. And then they did win it 82, three years later, and it was like the greatest thing ever that year. And I think that year they opened with a victory over Nebraska, like 35-31 in a back-and-forth game. But I used to watch all those games. So I understand exactly what you're talking about when you talk about the history of the Sugar Bowl and how it pertains to Penn State, I guess. No, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, And it's just an iconic game, you know, um, it's funny. There's there's a restaurant at Penn State uh, called the Corner Room, and you go into the bathroom, and it has on, on one side at the time when I was in college, I had a picture of Joe Paterno, and on the other side they had a picture of Bear Bryant, you know, in his uh, at Penn State under the goalpost, you know, with his you know houndstooth hat on, hmm. and um, just just that those two men once you know graced the sidelines of this game, and then just for me, you know, just some kid who grew up in New York City that went to Penn State, you know, just to, to think that I would have a chance to be on the sidelines. I mean, it's really special to me and, and, uh, and for our players, I mean, to be the first power five team in football, college football history to go from one and 11 and just two seasons later to be 11 and one. 
and they deserve this moment. And uh, so I, I'm trying to do my part to make sure that we, you know, we're well prepared. And you turn on the tape at Georgia, and very quickly, like it, it's sombering very quickly. They have, they have yeah. great players and a great scheme, but it, it should be a great football game. Who's the one guy in Georgia that you look at now and you say, boy, this guy's a great NFL prospect? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I, I'd say really uh, all across the board. I mean, I think um, I think obviously DeAndre Swift is, is uh, just a really, really special player. And he's, um, he's a, a guy to me that they can use out of the backfield. He can, he can catch the football. Um, you know, they have him lining up in the last game. He's out, out at receiver. He's a kid that being from Philadelphia, you know, um, I saw him all through high school. I know the character of, of who he is. I know he's only a junior, but um, I think he uh, he's a guy, guy that I've watched grow up in, in the sport. So uh, it'll be interesting for me to see him out there. And you know, I have another young man over on defense that we watched growing up, you know, know known him since he was ninth or 10th grade. He's out in the Philadelphia area, Mark Webb, a receiver that went there and, and moved and is their nickel. So they have, they have great players all across the board. I love the length and the physicality of their defense. The offensive line is, is dominant. It'll be a really great game. Now you brought up, Earlier in this interview, Tom Coughlin, and for those who don't know, you spent one year in the NFL as a Giants assistant coach in 2012, working underneath Tom Coughlin and working closely with Pat Flaherty, coaching the offensive line. What did you learn from Coach Coughlin? The number one thing I learned was the way in which he he dealt with uh, players and the way in which he spoke with players. You know, I had been a college coach, you know, as a college coach, you you know, you can, you know, you're, you're talking, you have 114 guys out there, you know, they're all um, kind of, you know, growing up, they're all, you know, around the same age. And then you get to the NFL and, you know, guys have, guys are different ages. You might have a, you know, you might, in your own position room, you might have a 21-year-old guy and a 33-year-old guy, you know, and so different stages of their life, uh, making different amounts of money, all have families. And that was new to me and unique to me. And, and here's Coach Coughlin, who's known as this, you know, uh, stern disciplinarian, and I thought he was amazing with the ways in which he talked to the players. You know, he would talk to the team and set a vision, but then he, he spent so much time one-on-one with the guys, whether it was Justin Tuck, Victor Cruz, uh, Eli Manning. You know, those guys would come in and out of his office. Um, he had a chance to make sure they understood what he was looking for. I think they probably had a chance to voice their opinions. And I went back to college and I said, you know what, the, the best way to do this is to make sure that I'm communicating one-on-one with players all the time. And um, it has changed me as a coach. Um, uh, the ability to, to not just talk in groups, not just talk in group settings, not just always be the loud guy, but to bring guys in, talk to them one-on-one, and get their perspective. And I, I think what that does, it allows me to know what's really going on with the team. And at the same time, it allows me to speak really freely and honestly with guys and hope that they then take my message. You know, my, The way I say it all the time to the guys is, Hey, you know, my message, but your words, like if you believe what I'm, what I say, then take it and say it your way. And uh, I think that then permeates through the team and you start to have a locker room that's really bought into what's happening. You bring up the NFL and you bring up coaching. I'm wondering how you handle dealing with the recruits and your current players at Baylor when there's speculation about you going to the NFL. Well, I just, I'm always really, really transparent about it. I'm really honest about it. Um, I tell guys what's real and what's not. You know, I, I start by saying that, I say, hey, guys, listen, you know, my name's been brought up in one way or another since 2015, uh, you know, since jobs, yet I've never ended up there. So, um, you know, you can't always take things for what they are. People might say you're a candidate, that your name's out there, but that doesn't mean that, A, it's going to happen, B, that you're really actually interested, or C, that people are interested in you. So I try to make sure I, I say that first. But then I, I also talk to the guys because I'm proud of the fact that, that my name would come up as, as a candidate for, you know, one of 32 NFL jobs. It, to me, it speaks about uh, the job that my coaching staff has done, uh, the job that my players have done, and hopefully also the job that I've done. And, and I tell our players and recruits, um, I expect my I hope my name will come up every single year because that means you guys are winning. <laughs> and that means that when you guys leave Temple or now that when you guys leave Baylor and you go to the NFL – um, those coaches, those GMs, those scouts, they're saying, wow, these guys are really prepared. These guys are really developed. And while these guys play really hard and they're disciplined and they're focused, um, and they're saying that you guys are different. And uh, you guys are the ones representing me. You guys, the way you play, are the ones that, that uh, I make my name off of. And so um, to me, when my name comes up, I think that's really uh, a credit to all of those people. And so I just try to be honest with them about it and say, listen, I haven't done it. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. Um, sometimes it's just talk. But the fact that my name's in there hopefully tells you that, hey, this is a good program. Because if you leave out of here, 
you're definitely going to be NFL ready. Well, your name is coming up again. It's a hot name now. It's come up in connection to any number of jobs that may or may not come open. I don't need to bring up specific cities, but what would you say to the idea of potentially becoming an NFL head coach in 2020, Matt? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't think I'm, um, I don't think I'm, you know, dumb enough or naive enough to say that, that I would never be an NFL coach. Um, I just think, you know, for me, I have such an unbelievable situation here that it would have to be, it has to be next to perfect. And even then it would be hard for me to do because uh, we've, you mentioned kind of all the things that we've gotten done here. That took a lot of hard work. That yeah. took a lot of, you know, elbow grease. That was not easy. And so, to me, I want to I want to build off of that and see if we can go win a national championship. I mean, we were, we were one play away, literally one play away from from making it to the college football playoff, and and I'd like to get that done. And so um, I don't ever say never. I don't make promises to our players. I don't you know when our players are when they're up. You know, we have juniors that might want to go to the NFL. I tell them all the time, hey, explore all your options. So I, I would never say that I, I would never do it. But I'm really really content with where we are, and I think that we can be even better in the coming years. And so um, it would have to be one of those, you know, idyllic situations where you feel like, Hey, I can, I can not just go here and win. I can win at a high level for a sustained amount of time um, in order for me to ever leave here. What would an idyllic situation look like in your mind? Well, I think, um, and I think this is from, even not even specifically to me, but I think for anybody that goes, I think you, a, you need to have a quarterback and B, you need to have alignment. You know, I think the reason why we've won at Baylor is because everyone from the players to the equipment room, to the training room, to the strength staff, to the football staff, to the personnel department, to our athletic director, all the way up to the president. Everybody has the same philosophy. Everybody, now we have a brand here. We say, hey, we're the toughest, hardest working, most competitive team in the country. And so everyone understands our brand. Everyone understands what we do, how we do it, and most importantly, I don't understand why we do it. And so um, I don't think that I would ever want to see myself or any coach in a situation where you're just subcontracted out for your X's and O's knowledge. Uh, the, t- the teams that have won in college football, the Nick Sabans, the Davos Sweeney's, the people that win in pro football, uh, the, the Mike Tomlins, the, the Bill Belichick's, they run a complete and total program. And everybody, you know, they have different responsibilities, but everybody's aligned to the same vision. And I think what you see when you see coaches coming in and getting fired in college and in the pros after two years, after a year, that just means that there's no, you know, the coach was brought in for his X's and O's. He was brought in for his play calling for how, you know, and that to me, um, that to me is not a recipe for success. We've all seen how the best do it. We've seen how Belichick does it. We've seen how Saban does it. And it's a top to bottom comprehensive football program, not playbook program. And so when college teams have reached out to me, I am not leaving Baylor because we have a comprehensive football program being built all the way, you know, through every part of the athletic department. And I think if, if you want to be successful in the NFL, that's really the only way you can do it and have sustained excellence over a period of time. Last year, Matt, correct if I'm wrong, you were a finalist for the Jets job, the Jets head coaching job. What did you take out of that process with the Jets last year, interviewing with them? Um, well, I, I think the first thing that I made sure my players understood was that, you know, um, it, you know when NFL teams call a college coach or call a sitting head coach, it doesn't mean that necessarily you're interviewing with them. You know, you're just you're listening to them and seeing their vision to see if, hey, is it what we just talked about? You right. know, and I think that's really where I formed this this belief. You know, understanding that you know in the NFL level, from the owner to the GM to the coach, but even beyond that, man, to the training room to the equipment, everybody has got to have the same uh, belief system, same alignment, and also the same sense of urgency. You know, when you're in when you're in college, you know, if if I go, a lot of other people here go as well. You know, the new coach comes in, he hires a new strength staff, he hires new recruiting people. You know, it's not always the same uh, in the NFL. And so every person that works here understands that their job is dependent upon how we do on the football field on Saturdays and how we do in the classroom. And so there's a true collaborative process going on. And um, I think from that process uh, that I've been involved with in other college jobs in the last year, I just really understand the importance of collaboration and alignment. And that's what makes me value this job so much is the fact that we've had it. And people say, like you started off by saying, how did you get to from 111 to 11 and 1? Well, if the people in the training room and the people in the weight room and really the people in our cafeteria, they all believe in what we believe. And so our players are being hit with the same message and really the same standards 24-7 
and it just builds this uh, uh, to, to steal from Anson Dorrance, like this competitive cauldron, even off the field of, hey, we want to be excellent in everything. And so I, I really learned the, the importance of alignment and, co- you know, a cohesive mindset um, all across everyone that touches your players. Matt, I appreciate the time. Before I let you go, you are a native of New York City. You graduated from Penn State. You've coached for the Giants. You now coach in Texas. So you spent a lot of time in NFC East cities. And I'm asking you to comment specifically on any one NFC East team, but there's a lot of teams in that division that under scrutiny, not to mention the fact that Washington currently has an interim head coach. What about the idea of winding up in the NFC East somewhere one day? Would that be appealing to you? <laughs> I just want to beat George. <laughs> um, no, I think, uh, I think obviously, you know, I mean, I, 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 uh, I grew up a, a Bill Parcells fan, so, you know, um, I, uh, I've read everything Bill Parcells ever wrote. So the, so the Giants, the Cowboys, the Jets, all the places, New England, all the places that he were are special, but, but um, to me, really, I really, really have a good job. And so I think that we can be a national, not even like a potential now. I think we can be a team that has a chance to go compete for national championships year in and year out. And so I, uh, I think when you have something great like that, you've got to be really careful not to mess it up. So, um, but, yeah, I, I grew up loving a lot of those teams, and, and I certainly root for them on Saturdays. What do you take <laughs> away from Bill Parcells? Uh, one of the best things I ever uh, took away from Bill Parcells is he wrote he wrote um, he wrote a uh, something from maybe it was Harvard Business Review and I I give it to young coaches all the time that I hire and he he basically said if you want to be a leader then lead you know he said don't wait till you earn it and he talked about you know after his first year and the things that he learned and trying to earn the respect of players and almost got fired after the first year and then said when he came back he said I'm gonna do it my way and he said if you want to lead lead like don't don't wait till you know you've earned people's respect or people have seen you as a leader. Just start leading, and eventually people will follow. And you know when you're zero and five, zero and six, zero and seven as a as a head coach, you can start to really question yourself and start trying to explain. You know, and you know what, leaders lead, man. Get out front and go be the job, and eventually people will follow you. And then the second thing I'll say is in his autobiography, he wrote that there's a way to win every game, and um, I've always said that, like. You know, you, you mentioned, in, you know, in 2015, we beat Penn State for the first time in 74 years. And I remember telling our coaches, I'm not sure that we can beat them 10 out of 10 times, <laughs> but there's a way to win this game. So let's go, just, let's just find a way to win just this one. And um, if that means that, if that means we have to run the ball 50 times, if that means that we have to, uh, you know, throw the ball 50 times, but, but let's find a way to win the game. And I think those two, um, those two messages have, have really helped me as a coach in my career. Hey, Matt, congratulations on being the Big 12 Coach of the Year. Good luck against Georgia in the All-State Sugar Bowl on January 1st, and thank you very much for the time today. Really appreciate getting to hear your voice, your message, and your thoughts on coaching. Thank you very much. Joining us now, my friend, my colleague, ESPN Draft Analyst Todd McShay. And, Todd, here we go again. Your first mock top 10 is out. I saw it just this morning, and I said to myself, Let's get on and have Todd break down the top 10 already. There's no time that's too early to get into the April 2020 draft than right now in December. What do we got here? <laughs> well, thankfully, we, we've got some quarterbacks. Which is always great. We've got some wide receivers. We've got some running backs this year. So some offensive skill talent, which I feel like we've been lacking a little bit of the last few years, more defensive linemen. Now, the best player in the draft, Chase Young. He's a defensive end from Ohio State. I don't know that he's going to go number one overall. I think the Bengals are going to sit there at one and say, you know what, we need a quarterback. Mm-hmm. But Chase Young, to me, you know, Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, I, I, I've fought the battles for both of them. After the combine, they didn't run great 40s. They didn't run in the 4.5s, the 4.6s. They ran in the high 4.7s and the low 4.8s, and I, I just loved them as players. Chase Young's better. Wow. He's more athletic. He's more explosive. And he's got a chance to be one of the special players in the league. So he's the best defensive player. Joe Burrow, the quarterback from LSU. And we, and we got a lot of time to get into all of it, but I don't know in 20 years of doing this, Shefty. I don't know that I've seen a quarterback or a player for that matter improve from one year to the next as much as Burrow did. And it's not like, you know, everyone was like, well, where did where'd Carson Wentz come from? Well, he's a small school guy, and we knew about him. I had a second-round grade on him. Burrow, I had a fifth, sixth-round grade on this guy coming into the season and got to watch him against SEC talent. And then all of a sudden, Joe Brady comes in, 
new system. He gains confidence. You know, Tua Tungavailoa from Alabama has the injury, and, and that kind of opened up an opportunity, I think, for, for Burrow. But at the end of the day, what Burrow has done in a 12-month span is absolutely remarkable. Trying to think of another quarterback that made that kind of rise. You brought up Wentz. I think for some reason there's another guy. Well, Baker Mayfield. How about that one? Kyler Murray. Yeah, Baker. Well, Baker was. I had a third round grade on Baker. I think that's probably the most the most apt comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyler, we just didn't see play, you know, because he was sitting behind Baker Mayfield. So, and you know, he he had transferred in and, and all of that, but we just hadn't seen enough of him with. With Burrow, though, you had a full season to watch. And again, I went, I went back and watched the tape again from last year. He's just a game manager. You know, he's just, he's not throwing the ball a lot. He's not being asked to do a lot. And all of a sudden this year, he looks like a seasoned NFL veteran inside the pocket, feeling the pressure from the outside, climbing the ladder from the inside, sliding, eyes always up. Throwing with anticipation, doing everything that you look for from a quarterback, and he's got toughness that you have to have, and some mobility that you all of a sudden in the NFL I think is becoming more and more important. Let me give you the case for why Chase Young is going to wind up going number one here. Okay, okay? and we're going to start this already, and we'll have months to dissect this, but I've already come up with a scenario in my own mind, Todd, that I think is rather interesting. Joe Burrow, I think, winds up at Cincinnati. But if you're the Bengals and you're holding the number one pick and the Giants are behind you at two and mm-hmm. the Redskins are behind you at three, how about saying to the Giants, I need a two for you to come up to one. I love it. Or I'm going to trade back to Washington spot and Washington is going to come up to one and I'm going to go to three. I love it. You're already a step ahead, as usual, Shefty. I love it. <laughs> That's great. That's exactly what they're going to try to do. Right. Now, no, 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 no. Hold on. The Bengals don't trade draft picks. So that that's the fly in the ointment right there. Yeah, but how do you not try? It's so obvious, and right? The, on, the only thing that scares you then is if you move to three, hypothetically. Right. And the Giants trade out and someone jumps right. you for the quarterback. Right, exactly. But who's going to do that? Well, listen, I guess when we look at the top ten right now, and who needs a quarterback? The Dolphins yep. could be in that market. The Lions they, could be in that market. right now, hypothetically. The Jaguars. Yep. The Panthers, maybe, and the Chargers. There are a lot of teams that could make that jump, but it's going to be a lot. So if you do it with the Giants, you lock yourself in, okay? And you say to the Giants, look, not going to cost you much. Give us a three. Give us a three, and we'll go back one. Yeah, I'll take a three for for nothing, basically. That's exactly it. And now Chase Young, the Giants lock in. The Bengals pick up an extra draft pick. They go back to two and take Joe Burrow. And Chase Young goes number one. And you know what? One GM told me about Chase Young about a week ago. He said he's the highest graded defensive player he's had since Indomitian and Sue came out of Nebraska. I've got Von Miller. I was I was waiting to see who you said, but Von Miller is the the highest. I have a similar grade on Chase Young and Von Miller, and not since then has there been a, a player that high. I mean, that's how special he is. He's got a chance to be one of the elites. Thirteen to fifteen sack a year guy, right? Yeah. Now, you brought up the quarterbacks. You brought up the quarterbacks. Give me an assessment of what you think of the quarterbacks in this draft because we just outlined all the teams that are going to be in the market for one. Right. And it always drives, I think, the popularity of a draft, the quarterbacks. This is going to be an interesting class because you, you have Joe Burrow who he's not a one-hit wonder, but you know only one year where he's playing at this high of a level. So, so there will be pe- people, I'm sure, that will, will have some negatives. Then you got Tua Tungavailoa from from Alabama, who is, I think, the best quarterback in the class when he's healthy. But he's had two ankle injuries, he's had a knee injury, and now he won't be able to walk. I'm told for about two and a half months from now because of the hip injury. I was standing ten yards away from him. I thought he just broke his nose, man. Wow! And I didn't realize until the trainers picked him up and he couldn't move, and his. His leg was shorter than the other leg, and it was so clear what happened uh, that that it was something that severe. And you know he's a special guy, and he's young, and he can recover from it. And they're saying that the surgery went really well, and that he's going to be you know at full strength. But he's a little bit like Drew Brees. If you you know obviously yeah. Drew Brees is a hot topic right now, coming off of the the touchdown record that that he had in the Monday Night Football game. 
but when you study Drew Brees, everything's twitchy. It's quick. His feet are tied to his eyes, and he's always moving in in the pocket, and and it's like boom, 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 boom. And that's the way that Tua plays the game. If he loses that, yeah. he's not going to be the same player. So that's the big. I, I think the biggest wild card in this entire draft is Tua's health, and we're not going to find out until probably. March at some point where he's headed, not necessarily exactly what he's going to be and and what the long term is. And I've had teams tell me that they believe, and it doesn't mean it's right, but they Mm -hmm. believe that the risk of re-injury is there. Now, I don't know how to quantify that, but there is a risk for re-injuring that. I've heard the same exact thing. And so that could factor into his stock. So now look, so we've got the draft figured out, right? we got the Bengals trading back one or two slots. We've got <laughs> yeah. medical questions about Tua Tonga Viola. And so we're going to see how this all unfolds. And now you were there when Tua goes down. What was it like just being there 10 yards from it, Todd? Like, what do you remember about that day? I remember, I, I actually remember talking to my producer, Josh Hoffman, in between, it was a commercial break, saying, all right, uh, two has got to be out of the game. There's no way they're bringing him back in. Yep. And then he comes back in on the field. And I, you know, decisions are made, and and Nick Saban has made a lot better decisions his entire life than I have. So it is what it is at this point. But I remember then standing in the end zone on the play where he was injured and watching two defenders converge on on Tua, and just having that it was a sinking feeling because the way he went down. And then I went running over, and I was about five, seven yards away from the the trainers, and and I just saw blood coming down, and the and the trainers were putting on their gloves, and they were doing everything that you would think for a bloody nose or, or some kind of cut, because they had you know they had to have the gloves on, and so I'm thinking, all right, you know what? Worst case, he's got a broken nose, and and he's going to be fine, and and that's you know get him out of the game, and he's safe, and then they stand him up, and then I remember. They cart him off the field, and all of a sudden, I go. I actually, it, I go to talk to um, who was it? Joe Moorhead, yeah. the uh, the coach from Mississippi State, at halftime, and because it happened right before the half, I just went. I went to go talk to him as he was coming out, and I had about ten people accost me and basically push me out of the the tunnel physically, like wow. out of the tunnel. And that's when I knew it was serious because the x-ray machine was right by Mississippi State's uh, locker room. And and that's when I knew something serious was going on. They brought in the, the ambulance and they, they covered the whole thing. And you knew it was something much more than a sprained ankle or a broken nose at that point. Yeah, that was one of those things where we're getting ready for Sunday Countdown. And when... I'm in the position of being forced to check into a college injury on a right. Saturday in the NFL season. You know how significant that is, and that's an injury that will hang over this draft and that young man's future. And I hope he's okay because he's I such a good guy. That. That, that's the other thing that I, I want to make sure that everyone understands. It. You spend any time with him, he's different. He he loves his family. Everything's about family and team. He, there's not a bad bone in his body. He's a competitor. He wants to be out there. It's really hard not to root for, for Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Now, the other quarterback you have in the top 10 is Justin Herbert. Right. What is the Tom McShay assessment on Justin Herbert? Uh, difficult. Because he, kind of like Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming, the big arm, great size, mobile. He can take off and run. He can, he can beat you with chunk yards. And there's so much potential there. But will he ever be consistent enough as a decision maker and with his accuracy to be a great quarterback in the league? Now, Josh Allen's had success. They have a great defense in Buffalo and, you know, they've, they've surrounded him with the, the right situation and the right players. But, um, with Herbert, it's difficult because you, he's also a different, human being in terms of personality than Josh Allen and, and most quarterbacks that I've ever been around. He's very introverted and he's open to talk about it and his coaches talk about it and you sit down in, in a meeting room on a Friday before a game and the offensive linemen are the ones that are sitting in the middle of the room and he's kind of off in the corner. Hmm. So he's just and it's not he's so intelligent. He's a great guy. The players love him. There's nothing negative Outside of he's just not your typical type A personality. 
Listen, here's what I would say, Todd. Take a snapshot of your top ten right here, okay? Because the winds of change will start blowing after this, and some of the fibs and lies will start (laughs) filtering in. So this is probably the purest, most unfiltered look at what the top ten should and would be prior to any Yeah, this will be my best mock draft, no question. (laughs) (laughs) And I would hope that you get some quiet time between now and the combine in February before the madness really gets underway here. I'm hoping so, too. I can't wait to get home to my kids and and family and have a couple days before bowl season starts. Hey, Todd, happy holidays, happy new year to you and your family. I appreciate the time and the insights today, and I look forward to all these moves unfolding as we follow the draft coming up. Same to you, Shefty. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Todd. All right, brother. Joining us now, the Ravens starting left tackle, Pro Bowl left tackle. How does that sound to you, Ronnie, for the first time? (laughs) Sounds good. What does that mean to you to be selected to your first Pro Bowl, Ronnie? Um, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, exciting. Um, just proud of, you know, the people that helped me get this far. And, um, you know, there's got a lot lot more to go. It's been one of those magical years for the Baltimore Ravens. You guys basically need to win one more game on Sunday versus the Browns to clinch the number one seed. You need 336 rushing yards over the final two games to break the NFL single-season rushing record. You're part of our Ravens offense this year that leads the NFL with 2,830 rushing yards. What has this year been like for you to go through in your fourth NFL season? Uh, it's been fun. You know, I think that's the, the best way to describe it. You know, um, we've had good times. We've had uh, bad times. You know, there's there's been moments of adversity, but... Uh, I don't think we've ever got down at any point in time on ourselves, you know, in the season. When did you know that this season had a chance to be special, Ronnie? Um, I mean, I knew it during camp, honestly. Uh, just competing with these guys day in, I saw, you know, how complex our defense was and um, the weapons we had there, the, the secondary, the, the line. You know, um, I knew those guys were going to be tough. And um, just the guys we had in the O-line, I knew we had some dogs in there. Um, we had receivers that were willing to block, you know, put their bodies on the line. And, um, yeah, you know, you had running backs, you had, we had good tight ends. We, I, I knew we had everything we needed. We just had to, you know, put it all together. Was there that much of a difference in watching your team this summer in your fourth year compared to what you had seen the previous three years? Uh, yeah, for sure. I think, um, just our, our level of execution, um, level of, um, you know, understanding the offense and um, just progressing in that, just how fast we how fast we progress doing that. Uh, it was uh, overall, yeah, a lot better. You didn't even bring up a certain quarterback for your team, Lamar Jackson. You didn't mention him in all those things. I mean, Lamar is you know a given. That's 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 <laughs> the MVP X factor. You know, without him, this whole you know the train doesn't go. What, when did you know that he was different? I knew in training camp as well, you know. I mean, I saw it every day. I mean, I, I watch film, and, you know, I understand, you know, what what's difficult to do for certain players and what's difficult to for different players to uh, handle, and he, he handles, you know, every situation like he's been there before. Does he remind you of anyone you have ever played with or against? You know, uh, Everett Golson. Yeah, you know, it's be the only or Malik Zaire. You know, those are the only two close guys. So, but they don't. They're not even. Uh, you know, they're just as they're just as you know as mobile. You know, I would say you know as other guys that are uh, that are considered mobile quarterbacks. Lamar's in his own you know class. For those who don't know, those are two Notre Dame quarterbacks that you play with at Notre Dame. And what elevates Lamar into something that other quarterbacks are not? Uh, that he runs faster than most of the DBs on every team, <laughs> and he can throw accurate balls at, at his will. And only time he really messes up is because he did something wrong and he knows what he does wrong, and he goes and he fixes it, and he's mature in a way that he doesn't feel like he's ever um, made it. He's always trying to get better. And, you know, all those things in combination, you know, is, is hard to find. And with Lamar and with your team and with the offensive line and with your pass blocking and with all these things, again, you guys are on track to have a, one of those memorable years, Ronnie. What do you think your team needs to do to contend for the Super Bowl title? 
I think we just need to take it one day at a time and uh, treat every day as its own and go out, you know, and um, just get a little bit better that day and um, and just go out with the focus and intensity that, you know, we that, you know, that we did throughout the whole year. Just kind of just not, not let up and lose focus. Can you imagine what that would be like to win a Super Bowl? You ever stop to think about that? I, I, I mean, I try to imagine what it's like, but I have no idea what it's like. <laughs> so what do you imagine it to be like? I don't know. I imagine to be pretty, pretty happy. <laughs> you know, one of the happiest, happiest times I'll ever, uh, you know, be in. What would be up until now the happiest that sports has ever made you? Uh, man, it's, it's tough. When we won the, um, I don't know. It's a tough one. There's been a lot of like crazy games, you know, uh, even in college. Like I would say when we beat, when we, uh, beat Michigan, on a goal, on like uh, we had a goal line stand, Michigan the year we went to the national championship, and the, like we had a, a goal line stand versus them in 2012, where they they couldn't score on four runs straight to to win the game. You heard me there as a Michigan man, Ronnie. Now, but let I'm me say sorry. this: stopping Michigan on four straight plays, I would imagine, does not equate to hoisting the Vince Lombardi Trophy. No, exactly. So I I really have nothing, you know, to really compare it to. So I have no idea what that feeling would be like, but, you know, that's that's what I'm trying to get to. And for those who don't know, you also have taken in a couple of rescue dogs, Lola and Rico. What kind of joy do you get out of having two rescue dogs? Oh, I have, you know, great joy. You know, I come home, you know, they're, uh, they're excited to see me. I'm excited to see them, you know, and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you just get reminded, you know, the, the life they lived and the life you're, you're trying to give them. And, um, you know, I try to uh, help animals, you know, just in general, all around. Um, I'm an advocate, like, for that. So, um, yeah, it's been great. The other thing that I got on my Ronnie Stanley scouting report is that you love to travel, that you've traveled to a great many places like Japan. What has been your most memorable trip and where would you still like to go, Ronnie? Yeah, I would say uh, Japan's definitely the the most memorable trip just because of all the history, um, the the sights, the food, um, the culture. It's really, you know, a, a lot to take in. Uh, you really need to spend like a month there to really take everything in. How long were you there for? I was there for like 10 days. And just sightseeing, touring, vacationing? Yeah, went to a couple cities, um, went to different, you know, uh, temples and different, you know, uh, sites. And there's so, there's so much, uh, historical, you know, monuments there that they've, that they've kept in, you know, great condition. And it's, it's crazy how good a condition the, the monuments are, are there. And they don't allow you to take pictures, but you know, they're in like pristine condition. Like it looks like people could still be living there and it's crazy, you know, so there's so much there, you know, so it's a lot, it's really a lot. And where is still left on your itinerary to get to that you really want to go to? Uh, I'm still trying to get to, like, Italy, uh, Greece, uh, you know, uh, those places in Europe I really haven't been to. Um, so that's probably, you know, someplace. And then, you know, probably, like, I don't know, probably, like, Brazil. Um, you know, yeah. You've like never that. been to Europe at all, Ronnie? I've been to London. I've been to Russia. Uh, but I haven't been to, like, I really want to go to Italy, France, like for their food. Yeah, well, so, I was, was going to say to you, let me say this. As a guy who, who's who been to Italy a couple of times in my life, a few times, um, it's the best. And the food, when you go there and you're eating food there, you wonder how you could wind up coming home and eat what we eat on a regular basis. It's yeah, a, you got to message me the food spots then. Oh. So, so no. Oh, you tell me when you're going. I will send you to a couple of places. I've sent a bunch of places. I've sent a bunch of people to this one restaurant in Rome. Um, and it is, I'm, I'm going to tell it to you right now. How about that? I'm, I'm looking it up on my phone because every time somebody's going to Rome, there's this place right by the embassy's Ambasita de Abruzzo, which is on Via Pietro Ticini, I think, if I'm saying it per- correctly. And it is an unbelievable place. You sit down, you don't order anything. They just keep bringing, actually, you may order like, what kind of pasta you like, and then they just bring out bowls and plates of food and meats and pastas, and you kind of roll out of there. And it's mm. and it's every place you go in Italy is like that. It's just it's an incredible place to go. You need to go there. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, you definitely got to uh, text me that name. So, because I'm probably going to go this off season. So yeah, I need to 
need to get some good recommendations. Now, let me ask you this. What would happen if you advanced to the Super Bowl and you couldn't play in your first Pro Bowl? How hard would that be? I mean, I wouldn't be worried, honestly. I'm, I would be probably more happy that I'm playing in the Super Bowl. You know, that's that's the goal we're, we're all set out for. And, um, you know, we had a bunch of guys make the Pro Bowl this year. I mean, but we're, we really don't want to be in it, honestly. I, I am told 12 players made the Pro Bowl for you. Yeah, yeah. And that's a record. Yeah, most in history, they said. Will that put more pressure on this team going forward? I mean, probably like in the media standpoint, but for us, we're we're not worried about that. We're just going out and playing ball. Hey, Ronnie, I appreciate the time today. Enjoy the postseason. Good luck in the postseason. We'll get you that Italy information. Stick to my recommendations. You'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I'm going to need those recommendations. (laughs) All right, Ronnie, thanks so much for the time today, and good luck in the postseason. Thank you. I appreciate it. There's Ravens Pro Bowl tackle Ronnie Stanley. Before we get to ESPN analytics guru Evan Kaplan, first a word from Vivid Seats. We all love a night out, whether it's seeing our favorite band in person or being there in the crowd to cheer on our favorite team. With the Vivid Seats Rewards Loyalty Program, you can attend the concert or show of your choice and earn credit towards your next live event. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you want to go to. You can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice, all in the Vivid Seats app. To make things even better, Vivid Seats now has a loyalty program that allows fans to earn credit back. All you need to do is use the Vivid Seats app to purchase tickets and start earning today. Go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. Fans are automatically enrolled in the Vivid Seats Rewards Loyalty Program. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater shows and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and join the Vivid Seats Rewards Loyalty Program today. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let the Vivid Seats app help you get to your favorite live event. Enter promo code ESPN25 for 10% off your next order. That's promo code ESPN25 for 10% off. Cap hit. Joining us now, my friend, the ESPN analytics guru, Evan Kaplan. Evan, happy holidays, happy new year to you and your family. Appreciate the time today. And as we get ready to head into week 16, there are, as usual, some outstanding storylines. And I think the biggest this week is the battle for the NFC East title in Philadelphia between the Cowboys and the Eagles. What do we got there? I would agree, Adam, and, and certainly happy holidays to, to you and yours as well. It's, it's a fun time of year when you mix the holidays with football and a lot of great games uh, going on. So NFC is pretty much on the line this week, as you said, in Philadelphia. If the Cowboys win, it's over. They win the division. If the Eagles win, there's still a slight chance for the Cowboys, but Philadelphia would certainly have a leg up going into Week 17. And you look at the Cowboys in divisional games this season, 4-0. Dak Prescott has been the best quarterback in football in divisional games. He's, he's gotten the better of Carson Wentz in their career matchups. And I think last week is kind of a perfect example of where these teams are and what their ceiling can be. I think you saw the Cowboys at home against the Rams really put it all together. They got the running game going, two running backs over 100 yards, and Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. And then the Eagles, Carson Wentz was great late in the game. You can't take anything away from him. But they struggled against the Redskins team, and I think – on paper, the Cowboys are the better team, but the big uh, variable is that they have to go on the road to Philadelphia, which is a tough place to play. And I, I think it's going to be a great scene down there in Philly on Sunday. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Who do you trust more? Ooh, that's tough. I, I think all week people have been saying Carson Wentz. I think I'm going to go with Dak Prescott. I, I am. I, mm. I think I think that his performance in, in these divisional games um, – Wow. I, I, it sounds like you would lean Wentz. Well, you know, here's the thing. I think Dallas has better players. Certainly. They have 15 Pro Bowl. They have 15 former Pro Bowlers. It's the most of any team in the NFL. Okay, so right there, Dallas advantage. Right. But I don't trust them. I don't trust the Eagles either. No, r- sure. Okay, I don't trust either of these teams right now to string together a solid 60 minutes. Somehow they have continually disappointed throughout the course of the season. <laughs> they have, they have it, and and look, you you you'll you'll add the coaches into it as well. Uh, Doug Peterson, 
Super Bowl winner, Jason Garrett, is has been talked about all season in terms of what his future is. Yeah. It's it's a fun game where neither of these teams have had the season that they hoped for. But but all that being said, a win on Sunday and the Cowboys will host a home yeah. playoff game. Yeah, uh, t- two. Talented, unreliable teams squaring off for the NFC's title. I, I think that is a perfect way to say it. Thank you. And with that, we will move on to more reliable teams <laughs> in the NFC. There are four of them sitting there right now with 11-3 and three records as we head into the last two weeks of the season at the time of this taping. How do we break that down? It's going to be a lot of fun to see how it shakes out in terms of who gets the bye. It's only the second time since the 1970 merger that four teams in a single conference started 11-3 and three or better. The other time was the 2004 with the AFC with the Steelers, Patriots, Colts, and Chargers. And this is a fascinating thing to me. So if you look at, as you said, the playoff picture, as we tape this now, heading into week 16, the 49ers are in a wild card spot. They are the five seed. The 49ers are the only team out of those four 11 and three teams that all they need to do is win out and they right. get the one seed. Right. The other three teams all need to win out and get a little bit of help. Just based on tiebreakers and how it shakes out. So while the loss to the Falcons, I think, was shocking to everybody, certainly how it ended with the defense, if the 49ers win their last two games, home for the Rams, at the Seahawks, neither will be easy. They get the number one seed. The Packers can't say that. The Saints can't say that. The Seahawks can't say that. If any of those teams win their last two, they would need a combination of one of the other teams to lose a game. So I, I just found that interesting. As you're looking at the playoff picture, if you're a 49ers fan, win the last two, the road goes through Levi Stadium. Two wins for the 49ers mm-hmm. against the Rams and at Seattle. I mean, winnable games. Very winnable. But losable games also. And Seattle plays better on the road than it does they at home, do. by the way. It's interesting. They've got, they have, uh, they're seven, they, they finished season seven and one on the road this season. They're done with their, the road games. They got more losses at home. I, I don't know. It's look after Monday night's performance. Yeah. I might trust the Saints out of these four teams. Well, about I think I've trusted the Saints all along, to be honest. Okay. With you, despite the fact that they lost at home to the 49ers and surrendered mm-hmm. a 40 burger in that game. But, right. but saying that, I will say this to you. I remember standing on the sidelines in Seattle for the Monday night game against Minnesota mm-hmm. and thinking, I do not know how quarterbacks and opposing offenses function in an environment that noisy. It is unbelievable. Right. It, it is, is. You cannot hear the person next to you, right? I, sure. I, I, I totally agree. And when if you exclude the 49ers, which they have been great at home, I don't know that we would think of, of Levi Stadium as a historical home field advantage, though. Think about the other three teams vying for that one spot and, and, and a bye. Packers, Lambeau Field, yeah. historic venue. As you just said, Seattle. The Saints in the Superdome, who were their only home loss in the playoffs with Peyton and Breeze, was with the missed pass interference call last year. So that yeah. adds another wrinkle into which one of these teams uh, gets gets the one seed and then the other who gets a bye as well. And by the way, Monday Night Countdown this year went to Green Bay. It went to Seattle. Mm-hmm. It went to New Orleans. And Green Bay is historic, iconic. Right. Love going there is much as I love going to any stadium in the country. But the noise levels and the intimidation factor of being in Seattle and New Orleans, right. I think, are as difficult of places to play as there are in the NFL. Right. No, I would agree. And I maybe I wonder if that has something to do with why Seattle is so good on the road. They play in front of such a great home crowd that, that nothing phases them. I mean, the, the, the stadium they play in front of is so loud anyway, and it's certainly Russell Wilson uh, – I think the these NFC playoffs have a chance to be as exciting as we've seen in a while with how strong the top of the conference is. Don't forget about the Vikings, who are 10-4. and four. And who knows, as we said with the NFC East, who comes out of that division, they could certainly get hot. You bring up the Vikings and the Packers. What do we make of that matchup on Monday Night Football on December 23rd? Fun game where both teams have a chance to clinch something. The Vikings can clinch a playoff berth with a win. The Packers can clinch the division with a win. And even though the Packers are only one game ahead of the Vikings, it's going to be tough for Minnesota to win the division based on their record within the NFC North this year. For the Vikings to win the division, they would have to beat the Packers in that game and then then win in Week 17 and have Green Bay lose. So uphill uphill battle for the Vikings. And then you look at the quarterbacks and we Keep, we will keep talking about Kirk Cousins in these games, but this is one where 
Look, he's 0-8 on Monday Night Football. <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> I, but, 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 that doesn't tell the whole story. And I think a lot of times we, we've talked about on this show about quarterback win-loss being deceiving at times. And certainly on other shows, people have talked about it. And, and I agree with it at times. And this is one case where Kirk Cousins played well in that game in Seattle. It, especially when you account for yeah. the noise factor and the fact that he didn't have Adam Thielen in that game. So while he gets a loss in that game, I think he played well. And he's played well in some of these spots all year. Prime time, bringing the Vikings back in the fourth quarter. But now he gets another chance against Aaron Rodgers, who has not lost on Monday Night Football if you go back to since 2014. Now we've brought up the 49ers, Seahawks, Saints, Packers, Vikings, Cowboys, Eagles. We have not brought up any AFC teams at all. Mm. There's a big game this weekend, Saturday night. The Bills at the Patriots, great AFC East matchup. How do you size up that game, Evan? This is one of the games I'm looking forward to, maybe outside of the Eagles-Cowboys the most in Week 16, just because of all the storylines coming in. You've got a Bills team that's won 10 games for the first time in 20 years, and they're taking that really tough defense against the Patriots offense that just hasn't been able to get it going. But history is against Buffalo. I looked this up yesterday, and this was incredible. Tom Brady is 15-1 and at home in his career against the Bills. And what was the one loss? A week 17 game in 2014 where he didn't even play the whole game. So the Bills have never beaten Tom Brady in New England when he played the entire game. Never. They've never done it. Now, another thing to keep in mind with the division here, Bills only one game back. But, again, another case where New England will have the tiebreaker even with a Bills win on Saturday. So, the, the Patriots would then need to get upset by the Dolphins in Week 17. The Bills would need to beat the Jets in order to win the division, which I think would be shocking to everyone if that happened. But this is it's an interesting game. I think take the division out of it because I think everyone will probably agree that the Patriots will beat the Dolphins in Week 17, which would still get them the division. I think people are interested to see if can the Bills go into Foxborough and win this game and stay competitive in this game and, and make – the Patriots' offense look like some of these other defenses have in the last month and a half? I think the Bills are better than people realize, and I think they probably showed some of that with the Sunday night win in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. against the Steelers. And I think New England, and nobody respects what they've done more than me, is a notch down from what the Patriots have been in other years. So they're more vulnerable. They're They're more vulnerable. I don't think I don't think any team wants to see the Bills in the play. I don't think I don't think the Texans. I don't think the 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 Bills just don't seem like a team that it's fun to play against in January football. No, and so that means that we've got a great playoff field, right? Because you're going to have five really good NFC teams Mm -hmm. and the NFC East winner, Mm -hmm. and you're going to have the Ravens and the Chiefs, right? And the Patriots and the Bills, and then two other AFC teams. Like, I'm good with that. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I the the NFC, you've got a lot of teams. I think it's going to be wide open. I think the story in the AFC is going to be who is the biggest challenger to the Ravens. I think that's the Kansas City Chiefs. Yep. Easily. I mean, they've already beaten the Ravens. They just added Terrell Suggs. They are improved on defense where they're a top-five defense over the last month they're, of they're the season. Number number one scoring defense in the league since Week 11. And they have the two scariest players in the game outside of Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill. And I think in the snow last week, we saw for the first time in about a month, maybe really the first time outside the Tennessee game since his, since his injury, the Mahomes we saw last year, which is scary for the rest of the AFC. Well, Evan... I wish you and your family a happy holidays, a happy new year, much happiness in the 2020 year ahead. Appreciate your time today and throughout the course of the season, and we will speak to you in 2020. Thanks, Adam. Same to you. Looking forward to it. There's the ESPN analytics guru, Evan Kaplan, breaking down the action for week 16. Special thanks to Evan Kaplan. Special thanks to the Ravens left tackle, Ronnie Stanley, and to the ESPN draft guru Todd McShay who gave us a glimpse of the top 10 and the memories of his day when Tua went down with that painful hip injury. Also special thanks to the Baylor head coach Matt Rule who has a big bowl game coming up and special thanks to you the listener to tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast this week and all the weeks of this year. We'll be off for a couple of weeks back in the new year January 2020 
Until then, wishing you and yours a very happy holidays and happy new year.